I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 56 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Twice in Matthew's Gospel, God himself says something out loud about Jesus. What God says about Jesus seems simple, but reveals something extraordinary about not only who Jesus is, but who we are because of it. We've actually been studying one first century biography of Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew for a while now, and we've just recently finally crossed the midway mark. So in Matthew, Jesus uh, comes on the scene early on. He's claiming extraordinary authority in and of himself. He's this magnetic figure. People are like, whoa, what's up with this guy? He claims to have authority. He teaches like he has authority. Um, And he teaches not just as someone who has authority, but unto himself. He doesn't appeal to an outsider, higher source to say, oh, you've heard Rabbi Hillel say this, and I'm repeating it. You've heard Rabbi Shema say this, and I'm repeating it. He says, I tell you. And then he uses this authority that he invokes to interpret the Old Testament and to actually speak for God. And then he goes around doing the kinds of things someone would do if they did have authority unto themselves. He heals sick people. He cares for the poor. He resuscitates dead people. Um, He even forgives sin. And all of that starts to grate on the religious powers that be because Jesus is an affront to the status quo, to the way things are. He won't get in line. He won't adhere to the way things have always been and the way they're supposed to be. But Jesus' closest friends, the people who are around him, his disciples or apprentices, they have begun at this point in the story, halfway through, years into Jesus' ministry at this point, to realize that he's more than just an incredible teacher. He's more than just a Hebrew prophet. Jesus, they start to believe and to actually say, is the long-awaited king of Israel, or the Messiah, the anointed one, the one Jewish people had been awaiting for centuries at this point. But the problem is, again, Jesus is an affront to the status quo. He is the king, but he's not the king anyone was expecting. Now, in last week's story, he confessed to his disciples that now that they recognized he was the king, they're like, you're the dude, you're the Messiah, we believe it. He's like, great. So the plan from here on out is I'm going to go back to Jerusalem where I will suffer and die. And a suffering Messiah was an oxymoron to the Jewish people. They believed he was going to be a victorious military leader who would overthrow Rome, restore Israel to power. So this sounds like a bad plan to them that instead he's going to go suffer and die. Which brings us to tonight's story. Let's read Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. You guys all right? Great, thank you. 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Verse 4 says, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. 
So chapter 17 of Matthew's gospel introduces something new into the story of Jesus. It's where we get something the commentators call the doctrine of power. In chapter 16, we learn that when someone readily admits Jesus is the king, the Messiah, the Lord, the anointed one, this becomes the foundation on which Jesus is able to build a community of people. And that community or the church, that way of life becomes something that not even death can overcome. Now, in this short chapter, chapter 17, we'll learn the source of that community's power, and we'll learn, learn the shape that that power takes, and then how disciples of Jesus put that power to work in the world. So the plan for tonight is take on the source of the church's power, and then we'll finish chapter 17 next week. Let's work through this text one line at a time. Verse 1 begins with, after six days. Now, the previous scene in chapter 16's conclusion, if you remember, is just like a bit of dialogue between Jesus and Peter and the disciples. Peter rebukes Jesus, which is probably not a great idea. Then Jesus calls Peter Satan, which is probably pretty embarrassing. They have a conversation about it. And then Matthew suddenly indicates a passage of time, which is weird because we weren't really tracking time in the formal sense before, so he must be up to something. In Jewish thinking, six days was the necessary passage of time to prepare for a holy thing to happen in Israel. So in Genesis 1, for example, you get creation itself being prepared in what the author calls six days before the institution of the Sabbath, which God makes and then calls holy. In Exodus 24, you read this. When Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of Yahweh settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, Yahweh called to Moses from within the cloud. So now in chapter uh, 17 of Matthew's gospel, the author suddenly interrupts the narrative with, after six days. Matthew is saying, something holy is about to happen. And then it goes on. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. This is a unique group within the 12 dudes that typically follow Jesus around. Uh, on more than one occasion, Jesus takes these three aside in unique circumstances. This makes a ton of practical sense, right? You're 12 people deep, always on foot. That's a decent-sized group if you've ever walked around with a lot of people. Um, you realize it's complicated. A while back, I was thinking about this as I read it this week and thought about that uh, a while ago, I says to myself, I says, <laughs> that's not the joke, but great. Uh, I says, you know what? We should get the whole Van City staff and deacons and elders and spouses together and just go out for dinner one night and talk about how things are going. So we're all at this long table at a Thai place downtown here. The staff, the elders, the deacons, the spouses. And it starts to sound like this. One person's like, hey, Megan, tell us, how do you feel Van City Kids is going? Are there any cool stories about what Jesus is doing? And Megan goes, well, yeah, actually. And I, I can't hear you down here from the other end of the table. So that stops really quickly. And Megan then now has to address this person. Oh, I was just about, I hadn't said anything yet, but I was just about to say. And then someone's like, did you order red curry? Mine's yellow, you know, from the other end of the table. And that's just sitting down in one place where it's relatively quiet. So then we're out on C Street and one person's like already hanging a left at the library. Like, I guess they're gone. Do they know where we're going? And somebody else is shouting directions to the wrong place. And Someone else is trying to tell a, two, a story that two people want repeated because they've only now come out of the restaurant. What? Who, did, who said what? You know, that kind of thing. So you guys know it's complicated. Group of people is complicated. Um, so if you're having like your Van City community night and you realize that you need extra food, like, oh, we need more noodles or whatever, uh, do you say, everyone to the grocery store? No, it's ridiculous. What you say is, hey, you... <laughs> 
you should drive to the grocery store and get us some more noodles. And then one person feels guilty and they offer to join them. That's how it works. And then those two talk about the rest of the group while they drive to the grocery store. That's, that's how it works. Point is, Jesus isn't saying, these are my best disciples. I love them the most or anything like that. He, he's like, the rest of them can get bent. We're going to go have a special time on the mountain. There's a sensible reason even teaching moments best suited for a few within the, the many. And he does this uh, as a model for future disciples as well. And this came up in almost every commentary I read that I found it really interesting given our tendency to prefer emulating Jesus in matters of overt spirituality, but less so in just basic pragmatism. So one of my mentors often brings two or three of his mentees when he travels around the world learning from other churches and leaders. And I thought at, for a while that it was purely for the company or at least for like henchmen or something. And then <laughs> I learned later, he's like, oh, I just do that because that's how Jesus did. He would take two or three people with him on unique occasions. So following Jesus certainly doesn't necessitate like slavish devotion to all things in first century Palestine. Some of them don't make any sense. But apprenticing Jesus is about learning from everything he does, not just overt spirituality. So he takes three from the 12, and the rest of verse 1 says, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And this too is on purpose. Mountains in the Hebrew scriptures are often the setting of great biblical revelations. Again, in Exodus, the passage we were just reading, it's on Mount Sinai that Moses spoke with God. God reveals his name and his character. He gives Moses the law. It's a whole thing. Jesus purposefully picks up that motif, and he delivers his greatest manifesto of teachings on a mountainside, and we still call it the Sermon on the Mount. So now we're at another big mountain moment. We don't know which mountain exactly, which is interesting. Scholars suspect that this was likely to avoid superstition that would develop afterward where legions of hopeful yet foolish people would be rushing to this specific mountain and try to emulate or recreate what happens next in the story. Um, you know how sometimes you hope, maybe this is just me, but sometimes you hope selfishly that something stays obscure so you can enjoy it in privacy and other people won't invade it like the... Relevant coffee over here, moving out of its little closet-sized shop and into this big, nice place. This is really hard on me because now I go into this big, nice shop. Everybody's in there having a good time. Everything looks so great, and I'm just resenting everyone for it, you know? Like, look at all this nice space, I grouse to myself. Or just the other day, I was talking to my wife, Abby, about how... <laughs> Uh, the, the weird, like, uh, contentious thing that people think is going on between Portland and Vancouver. You know the thing. It was like the people in Portland feel insecure, so they mock Vancouver, of all, a place of all things. Like, Vancouver can hear them. And uh, it's like, not cool, man. It's not. It's Vantucky or whatever. And then Vancouver people feel insecure, so they mock Portland. It's stupid. We don't even want to be there. You know, that kind of thing. And I think both positions are really silly. It's like, good stuff here, good stuff there. Hooray. Everyone wins. But lately, it seems to me, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that people are uh, starting to catch on about Vancouver's attractive qualities. And it's like, you know, you, when you're at a big get-together and a few people, like, drift into another area and they're all laughing and having fun because they, they, something's going on over there. And then people start poking their heads and, wait, wait, wait what are you all talking about? We want to be in on this. That's, that's what Vancouver feels like to me right now. <laughs> so I'm <t> <laughs> This has gone way out here. But I'm, I'm trying to double down. I'm like, hey, what's going on over there? What y'all doing? I'm like, nothing. This Vancouver's lame, man. You don't even want to be here. You know, keep it up with me. Maintain the illusion. Anyway, that's what Matthew's doing here. He's like, what mountain? Don't worry about the mountain. Doesn't matter. Don't go there. <laughs> Just listen to this story. And the story turns on a dime and gets really weird really fast. Look at verse 2. It says, there, so now they're on the mountain already. There, he was transfigured 
before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, which seems like a weird thing to have happened. But when you begin to unpack it, it's a thing of incredible beauty. If you recall, in chapter 16, we had this weird bit where Jesus promised that some of his disciples would live to see him coming in his kingdom. And some scholars argue this could be that moment. He's talking about a few of them have not yet tasted death and they can see him coming in glory in his kingdom. Either way, whether it's that or not, it sure is something. This is the only scene in what we think of as like Jesus' earthly career or ministry that he is spectacularly revealed in this way, like overt, physically, supernatural, like glowing and stuff. And Matthew uses the same kind of language to describe the transfigured appearance of Jesus that the Bible uses elsewhere to describe other heavenly beings. So he's creating and emphasizing a connectedness between Jesus and God the Father or Jesus and God's space. And why is there a cameo from Moses and Elijah? So follow me on this for a bit. There's a few reasons, actually. In one sense, both Moses and Elijah were believed to figure, in some sense, into the coming of the Messiah. In Malachi chapter 5, for example, you get stuff like this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of Yahweh, or the coming of the Messiah when everything changes. In Deuteronomy, you get the speech from Moses where he says, Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So Matthew is saying, look, here are both of them, Moses and Elijah, coming to Jesus, and he's been recognized as the Messiah. But that's not all. In the Old Testament, Moses is one of the central figures in what's called the Torah or the law, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Elijah, on the other hand, is a prophet that shows up in First and Second Kings, which are two books from the Nevi'im or a section of the Old Testament called the Prophets. So if you remember back to Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus summarizes the entire manifesto, all of his teaching up to that point, and he summarizes all of the Bible up to that point with what we now call the golden rule. He argues that you should do to other people what you want done to you. And then he says that this sums up what? The law and the prophets. So this term, the law and the prophets, was a way of referring to the entire Hebrew Bible, or what we now call the Old Testament, which was the Bible of Jesus' day. So here you have a story where Jesus is spectacularly transfigured before his disciples, and then Moses, representing the law, Elijah, representing the prophets, show up to commune with Jesus. And Matthew, we think, wrote primarily to a Jewish audience or with a Jewish audience in mind. So here he is, Matthew, with literary sophistication demonstrating continuity between the Old Testament and Jesus of Nazareth as the one to whom the Old Testament was leading the entire time. And notice Matthew doesn't record Moses and Elijah critiquing Jesus or rejecting Jesus. Hey, wait a minute, this isn't the guy at all or anything like that. The language is friendly and relational and familiar. It just says that they were talking with Jesus. But there's more to it than that, too. Keep reading. Peter, ever the source of interesting stories for us to point out and be like, yeah, he is dumb. We're so much better. Peter speaks up in verse 4, and he says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. The last time Peter, Peter spoke up in the story, it was to rebuke Jesus. That went poorly. So now we're off to a good start. He addresses Jesus with respect. He calls him Lord. That's the formal, respectful way the disciples uh, address Jesus. And he says something agreeable. Hey, this is nice. And then he goes on. If you want or if you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, uh, scholars pick up on a tiny note of Peter's, Peter's ego in here. 
uh, there are other disciples with him, but Peter takes the lead and he says, hey, listen, I can't speak for these other guys, but I will set up camp if you like. And notice Matthew records the order of Peter's offer. He says, one for Jesus first, then Moses, then Elijah. And that's not an accident either. So Peter is on to some good stuff here, but he's still got a ways to go. Uh, one scholar I read put it this way. Peter has not yet learned that leadership in the church is not, first of all, a matter of doing things for Jesus. It is first letting Jesus speak and then doing the things he says we are to do. Why is Peter always in such a hurry to advise the Lord? Why can't he wait for Jesus to explain things? I don't know about you guys. This has never been a problem for me. Uh, so it's easy for me to sit back and be like, well, he should mature. This is a joke. I struggle with it all the time. Do you get it? This is a joke. Right. Okay, great. Why, and why the heck does Peter want shelters? For the, I, that was always confusing to me, that he wants to camp, that he, he needs them to stay. It's like they've been there for one second, it seems like, in the narrative. But the near-unanimous interpretation from commentators is that Peter is likely trying to stall Jesus' plan to head to Jerusalem, where he's just claimed that he's going to suffer and die. So Peter's essentially saying, hey, isn't this nice? Let's stay here for a little while. Why don't you run this whole dying thing by Moses and Elijah, see what they have to say about it. But the whole thing, setting up camp, all that, it doesn't even have a chance to land because in verse 5 it says, while Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this is the pivotal moment in the story. Interrupting Peter in mid-sentence, a cloud covers them, and from it issues the audible voice of God. The same thing or something very similar happens in the baptism of Jesus, and there it's a bit ambiguous as to who can hear it and what it sounds like. But here, everyone hears it, it and that much is uh, clearly indicated as the story goes on. Um, and some commentaries suppose that Matthew intends it to read comically, like we're supposed to laugh at it because Peter's like, hey, I got a great idea. And it's like, behold, you know, as he's talking, oh, geez, you know, the, a cloud envelops them. God starts talking. The cloud is yet another reference to the Hebrew scriptures where in Exodus and in 1 Kings, the cloud was a unique representation of God's presence. So as God had done previously in Jesus' baptism, he speaks aloud his approval of Jesus, but he also talks about his unique connection to Jesus. My Bible translates that line, this is my son whom I love, but the whom I love is actually a single Greek word, agapetos, which means the object of special affection and of special relationship. So there's a a definite article and a limiting pronoun, which just is a fancy way of saying that it's not just this is my son. God is saying this is my only son, which is a term many of us have heard before in reference to Jesus' relationship with God the Father, but there's a radical significance to it. Jesus is the one and only true and human expression of God, unique in all the universe, as in uniquely from God and of God. And in the first three Gospels, God the Father speaks directly to earth only twice, and in both instances, he says almost the exact same thing, which is that Jesus is my beloved Son, and I am pleased with him. So one scholar points out, this means that the single most important fact that God wants the church and the world to know, barring none, is that all we have in Jesus of Nazareth. The voice means that God wants his church to reverence his son more than any other person, project, program, or cause in the world. 
And I mean, think about it. It actually makes a ton of sense. You've got Moses and Elijah, in this case, representing the Bible. And God himself shows up with Moses and Elijah. And God points to Jesus, only to Jesus, and says, listen to him. Which is nuts, right? God doesn't even say, listen to me. It's a scene with the Bible, the leaders of the church. You know, Peter, who's just been declared the foundation of the church. God himself, Jesus of Nazareth, and Moses, Elijah. With everyone there, God says, listen to Jesus. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't listen to the Bible. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't listen to the Father or church leaders. But it does mean that the Father is most revealed in Jesus. That the scriptures point to Jesus. And that leaders are to be followed only in as much as they direct us to Jesus and always Jesus and only Jesus. And then the story ends with this. Verse 6 goes on. When the disciples heard this, God talking, they fell face down to the ground terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now notice two aspects of this divine encounter. The disciples, upon seeing the cloud, hearing God's voice, get scared. Why? It, it could be the extraordinariness of it all. You hear and see something strange and wild and surreal, and you get scared sometimes. It happens. It could be that these kinds of encounters with God, proximity to God's bigness and his, his presence, even represented by a cloud, his greatness, his otherness, it's terrifying, and it's not because God's bad. It's because he's so unlike us and above us and beyond us, and that can be a scary thing. And we know that it isn't that they should be scared of God or that God's presence is somehow a bad thing, and we know because of what happens next. They fell face down to the ground terrified, but Jesus immediately, next thing, comes and touches them and commands them, don't be afraid. The disciples are so overcome with fear of the presence of God, they literally fall down, face down on the ground. But Jesus, who we know now is to be heard and obeyed, who most reveals the truth of God and the truth of God's character, who God himself, the Father, says, listen to him, the next words out of his mouth are the single most repeated command in the entire library of the scriptures. Don't be afraid. Before the awesome power of God, when you are trembling and afraid for your life, he who knows God most, who is uniquely from God, says three simple words. Don't be afraid. And make no mistake, this command continues to ring out over your life, where you sit this very evening. Get up. Don't be afraid. And this particular story ends beautifully in verse 8 with one of my favorite lines in all of Matthew's gospel. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Moses is gone. Elijah's gone. The cloud's gone. There is no one but Jesus. The glorious Jesus who was just radiating light, who was approved of and authorized by the Hebrew Scriptures, and not only that, but the audible voice of God. It's here, the same man who is their friend and their teacher, and his familiar voice is inviting them to leave their fear behind. And then they look up, and it's just him, only him. This moment so affected Peter that later in the New Testament, he writes about it, and he says this, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, in power. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. 
It's a beautiful story with a lot to say. And it is, in one sense, uh, a story about a moment between a father and a son. It's easy to miss that in the periphery of all this extra stuff and the fact that guys who seem to have been dead before that are there now. Um, but as I was studying this, this week and reading about it and kind of zeroing in on the father-son motif, I had a funny pop culture memory flash in my mind. In 2017, uh, I believe the story goes that someone was on a New York subway and they observed a man sitting across from them uh, that they gathered from looking at them, you'll see in a second, but also just from hearing him talk, that he was taking his very excited son to see Despicable Me 3. So the person took a picture of the father and the son. There they are. <laughs> and uh, the photo went on to make all kinds of international headlines uh, it, uh, because it captures a very sweet, very funny image of a father and son. But the reason that the picture moves so many people, I think, is that it seems to infer so much. It seems to be a father with a beloved son who is willing to display his loving approval of his son before the world to the delight of the son, I'm sure. So if you've seen a, a movie with minions in it, you know it's very hard to conceive of an adult human who would want to, of their own volition, go see a minion movie, let alone dress up like a minion to do that. So even with very limited knowledge of like the context of the picture, many of us are touched by the simplicity of what we see. It seems to be a dad saying, I love my son, I am very happy with him, and I am willing to put that on display. In tonight's story, God the Father is saying, here is my son. I am like him, and he is like me. And let it be seen, and let it be known that I am with him, and he is with me. And the implications of such a thing for us tonight are twofold. The first is yet another emphasizing of a consistent motif throughout Matthew's gospel. It's not going anywhere. And that is that Jesus is God's promised Messiah. The entire Bible points to Jesus. The leaders of God's church are to direct others to Jesus. God himself draws our attention to Jesus of Nazareth. And that thread will continue to permeate this story. If you think it's intense now, just wait. It's going to get even more intense. Jesus, in the story, and what Matthew is saying to us again and again and again with every punchline, with every resolving motif, is that Jesus is second to no one. He is comparable to no one. All truth is only true in as much as it corresponds with the truth of Jesus. Anyone who would accept Jesus' invitation to follow, they only follow Jesus. Jesus is the one and only king of the universe. But there's something else here as well. A complicated, strange, and beautiful thing happens when you or I accept the kingship of Jesus, the, that Jesus is God's Messiah and Son, and we decide to follow him as our rabbi, as our teacher and our Lord, when that happens, God, in some complex, strange, cosmic way, chooses to see and understand us through the lens of his perfect son. Meaning, though we are messy and broken and imperfect and often disobedient, God sees us, in the language of the New Testament, in Jesus as healed and made whole and perfected and without blemish and sanctified, redeemed a new creation, and thus adopted into the family of God, the Father's family, you become the beloved son, the beloved daughter with whom God is very pleased. And make no mistake, God does not need a theological trick to love you. God does not love you in spite of your brokenness, in spite of your imperfections. He just loves you, and that's it. 
in The Magnificent Defeat, Frederick Buchner writes this. We are children, perhaps, at the very moment when we know that it is as children that God loves us, not because we have deserved his love and not in spite of our undeserving, not because we try and not because we recognize the futility of our trying, but simply because he has chosen to love us. We are children because he is our father, and all of our efforts, fruitful and fruitless, to do good, to speak truth, to understand, are the efforts of children who for all their precocity are children still in that before we loved him, he loved us as children through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is, to my estimation anyway, among the most difficult theological concepts for disciples of Jesus to not only understand but to trust and to believe is actually true. In uh, what is easily among my most uh, beloved and formative books I've ever read, a book called Abba's Child by Brennan Manning, he writes this, it takes a profound conversion to accept that God is relentlessly tender and compassionate toward us just as we are, not in spite of our sins and faults, that would not be total acceptance, but with them. Though God does not condone or sanction evil, he does not withhold his love because there is evil in us. God did not perform theological gymnastics to work out some kind of trick and way that he could love you. Couldn't do it before, but if he, you're in Jesus, then he could figure out a way to love you. It is entirely within the nature of God to love you, whether you follow Jesus or not. not and long before you followed Jesus, it was entirely within the nature of God to love you. And all your garbage, he loved you. And all your garbage right now, he loves you. He cannot help but love you without qualification and without condition. But God wanted to do much more than that. He didn't want to love you from afar. He wanted you in his family, adopted proper. So in Jesus, God clears away the obstacles that we create to wall ourselves off from the love of God, and he is able to pronounce in no uncertain terms, this is my daughter. I love her. I am pleased with her. This is my son. I take great delight in him. I love him. That is how God thinks of you. That is how God talks about you. And that is how God understands you. It doesn't mean that you're not screwed up or that he approves of the ways in which you are screwed up. It simply means he can't help but love you. And so that's what he does. That is the unshakable refuge of our discipleship to Jesus, the hope that cannot be dashed, the resilience beyond our circumstances in life, that with all our crap, with all of life's chaos and pain, with all our stumbling and falling and backtracking and false starts, we expect God to ring out disapproval over, over our lives, and he instead pronounces us beloved and pleasing to him. And when God is ready to speak out over us, when God is ready to pronounce his love for us, we often fall face down before God, terrified only to have Jesus help us back up with a command, the most repeated command throughout the Bible, do not be afraid. So that when we look up, we see no one except Jesus. And may we be grateful to find him, and not only grateful, but unafraid. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to speak out over our lives.
Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.